Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, Mission Pastor Hoffman Ryan continues our series, Following Jesus, in Mark chapter 10. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, one chapter a week, and this brings us to Mark chapter 10 today. So if you want to turn there, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. And if you've been tracking with us, you'll know that Mark wrote his account to Christians, possibly in Rome or somewhere else in the Mediterranean world, who were under pressure from the culture around them because of their faith allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the way Mark lays out his his gospel narrative, he lays it out in three parts, like three acts in a docudrama, if you will. And in each act, you find Jesus interacting with people, and the people are wrestling with questions. And in the first section of Mark, they're wrestling with the question, who is this Jesus? They see him saying and doing things that they didn't expect a man to be able to say or to do. Who is this Jesus? And Mark brings this first main section of his gospel narrative to a close in the good confession of Peter. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in the second section of Mark, The the people there are mainly zero in on the disciples and they're wrestling with the question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? The Pharisees have begun to oppose him, but the disciples' hearts are, are softened, but they don't quite understand what is his Messiahship like? Messiah means king, if you remember. What is his kingdom like? What kind of king are you? And how will you bring your kingdom to bear in this world? They're wrestling with this question. And as we read it, Mark is warning his audience then as well as us now to wrestle with these same questions. And for us today is what does it mean that Jesus is Messiah? So in this second section, Jesus takes his disciples on a road trip. They had been doing ministry for three years up in the mainly in the area of Galilee. But now he sets out from Galilee and it sets his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. So this middle section of Mark is basically the road trip, the travel log, if you will, of Jesus' disciples. And on the way, he's still encountering people, but really this section about is Jesus' teaching. He teaches about a number of different things, but his central teaching is this, and shapes all of his other teachings, is that Jesus had come to this earth to die on a cross and on the third day rise again. Everything else he teaches is shaped by this central teaching, And today we're going to see him teach on marriage, on children, on wealth, and on power. And Mark is posing the question to his readers and to us today. What does the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, how does that reshape our understanding and our approach to marriage, children, wealth, and power? So let's turn there now. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there, meaning Galilee. And he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, if your Bible reads like mine, there's a heading at the top added by the editors. And my heading says, Jesus teaches about divorce. That's usually the heading we see. But I want to suggest to you a better heading, I think, should be Jesus exalts the glory of marriage. That's what's really going on here. And oh, how we need in our day, in our culture, to exalt the glory and the beauty of marriage. Never before in our culture and perhaps history had there been so many forces tearing marriages apart and so little social forces designed to keep marriages together. We are completely a wreck when it comes to marriage in our culture today. But lest we get too discouraged by that, it's an opportunity for the church to shine and to show the world what marriage is truly about. And all this external forces pulling marriages apart, as bad as that is, it's, we also know from experience that marriage is hard, even in the best of circumstances. Even with two Christians who love God and are committed to loving one another for a lifetime. Even members who are part of a good church that celebrate and encourage marriage. Marriage is hard. Can I get an amen? Anybody out there? <laughs> marriage is hard. Thank you. That's my wife laughing back there. Um, but instead of focusing on the threats to marriage, what I want us to focus on is what I believe Jesus wanted his disciples to focus on here. It's on glory. The glory and beauty of marriage. You see, he says that marriage was designed by God. It was his idea. Man didn't come up with this. And being designed by God, it radiates with its own beauty and brilliance. Think about it. Two individuals, male and female, coming together, joined by God, not by their own will, but by the will of God in a covenant relationship. And over a lifetime of learning to radically give themselves one to another in self-giving love, two lives become so intertwined, interdependent, and interpenetrating that God can say the two have become one. God's marriage math is one plus one, and the love of God becomes one. It's profound. A profound unity held together in the security of an unbreakable covenant love. That is marriage. I once heard a story about a couple who decided that every year on the anniversary, they would put on their wedding clothes and they would take a picture. And over the years, they were going to collect these pictures into an album. So on their first anniversary, the clothes still fit, first of all. And the photographer, the professional photographer arrived and their new home sparkled, as did their hopes for a bright future together. Life is good. Smile. And the photographer snaps the picture, and they repeat their wedding vows. And the phrase, for better or worse, sticks in their minds, particularly the word better. But on their seventh anniversary, they no longer have the professional photographer. They can't afford him because the husband lost his job. Temporary layoff, perhaps, but still. So neighbors coming over to take the picture. The kids are screaming. The house is a mess. There's food on the floor. And they're both still feeling the sting of the fight that they had the night before. Does she even know how hard I'm trying? He wonders. 
And long gone are her hopes to fit in her wedding dress. Something, <laughs> something else, something else will just have to do. But she wonders, is he even still attracted to me? Does he even still like me anymore? The flash goes off. They repeat their vows and the phrase, for worse, sticks in their throats. Well, years go by and it's their 47th anniversary. 47 years. They wonder if they'll make it to their 50th. He's had two heart attacks and one triple bypass. And as they pose before the fireplace, he takes her hand in his, in his hers being wrinkled and twisted by arthritis. And the granddaughter comes up to take the picture and there's the batteries in the camera are dead. She, she says, hold on, I'll, I'll be back in just a minute. I'm going to get more batteries. But they weren't even listening. The two of them just looked in each other's eyes and they saw something more beautiful than any photo album could capture. The beauty of a promise kept. You see, marriage exalts the promise-keeping nature of our God. He makes promises and he keeps them. So our marriage is so important to the heart of God. It has its own brilliance in and of itself being designed by God. But it points to an even greater glory. The covenant love between Jesus Christ and his church. And at the center of this covenant is the self-sacrificial love of Jesus displayed on the cross to save his bride. And when she is enraptured and captivated by this love, it engenders in her a self-giving love back to him that grows brighter and brighter as they wait, as she waits his return. You see, when two people learn to live this way in a lifelong covenant of marriage, it not only brings unspeakable joy to them, God's creational blessings given as a gift to humanity, but it bears witness to a world that of the greater love from which it borrows the love of Jesus Christ. This is why he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now there's so much more we could say about this passage. It raises some important questions that we do not have time to adequately answer this morning. But don't miss, I don't want you to miss the main point. The main point is Jesus exalts the glory of marriage and makes our hearts want to long to honor it. And that glory is a self-giving, giving, promise-keeping, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for you, for me. And when that love gets a hold of you, you'll find yourself starting to live like him towards your spouse, towards your kids, or towards anybody around you. It's that powerful. Let no man separate it. Let's continue. Following Jesus teaches us to treasure children. Let's look in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
In this story, Jesus reveals to us the preciousness, the utter preciousness of children. And oh, how we need to see this in our culture and society today, do we not? Like marriage, children are by God's design. The whole amazing process of conception and and development within the womb and the giving birth and infancy and childhood and adolescence, that whole process, God could have done it any way. He did it this way. Why? To highlight something about his own character. You see, childhood and the whole process has an inherent glory and preciousness all of its own. And it's magnified to an infinite degree when we consider that Jesus, the eternal son himself, went through the process. Conception, development within the womb, birth, infancy, childhood, adolescence on his way to becoming an adult. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be a child from eternity and in human experience. So by design then and by his own personal experience, he knows what children need. And in this passage, he shows us. Children need advocacy. They need time. They need touch. And they need prayer. Look with me. They need advocacy. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. He advocates for them. The disciples want to send them away. No. He advocates for them. And he gives them time. Bring them near. And he lays his hand. He gathers them in his arms. Children need touch. Loving care. Tender care. And they need prayer. He blessed them. And also like with mirrors, the glory of childhood points to an even greater glory. The glory of our God who loves us in this way, who pours his very, think of parents, how much self-sacrifice it takes to raise a child. Any amens? Anybody feeling that? It takes a lot. You pour your whole life into the lives of these children to, to love them, to provide for them, to protect them in hopes that you can help them walk in, in life in a way that will, they will flourish. Your whole life is poured out to the life of this child. Why did God design it this way? Because he wants us to see that is how he is. He's always and ever have been, has been and never can be other than the God who always pours out his life and his love for those who know him, for his children, that we might be provided for, protected, so that we might flourish. That's who our God is. The other day at breakfast, um, I read this story uh, to my kids and my wife. We were sitting around the breakfast table. And so I asked them the question, because um, Jesus says here, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. So, so I asked them, what is it about being like a child that we must be in order to enter the kingdom? And I was expecting the, the answer that you've probably heard before, that, that well, it shows that children are, are dependent on their parents. They need to trust their parents to provide for them. They need their parents to do for them what they can't do for ourselves, for themselves. The kingdom must be received as a gift. It can't be grabbed. You, you receive it as a gift. I was expecting those kinds of answers, which all of those are gloriously true. But what Phoebe, my middle daughter, said, she said, well, children know that they have to live under authority. I was like, amen, girl. <laughs> yes, that was awesome. I'd never seen that in that passage, but it's true. They're, you're entering a kingdom. Well, in a kingdom, there's a king. 
No rebels are allowed in citizenship. We have to learn to submit ourselves to the king. He rules. To enter the kingdom, you have to be prepared for that. Jesus, rule me. You are king. And not only that, to enter the family, we have a father. Like a child who must honor his father and obey him. Life in the kingdom is about listening to, hearing the words of Jesus, the words of our father, and obeying them. There's no two ways about it. Jesus reveals to us the, the treasure that children are, the preciousness of childhood, of our own uh, being, being children of God ourselves, being precious in the eyes of God. And he calls us to cultivate this childlike posture towards our father of trust, of dependence, and honoring him as our authority. And it teaches us of the preciousness of children who are right around us, not just children, but anyone who's weak and vulnerable and dependent on others. So it, it cultivates this childlike posture towards God and this fatherlike posture towards children and those who are, who are, who are weak and vulnerable. When we, when we cultivate this, we become a source of strength for those who are in need. We begin to provide advocacy and time and touch and prayer for others. Well, let's continue reading. In this next Next story, we're going to see that following Jesus frees us from the idolatry of wealth. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And, Jesus, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In this story of the rich young ruler, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. Money was this man's idol. And because he wouldn't give it up, he shut himself out of the kingdom. Jesus has no problem with riches. He owns everything. And he has no problem with rulers. He is king. But what he has problem with is when riches rule over us, when our possessions possess us. 
That's what he has a problem with. And what he means in this story to do is not to condemn the man, but to free the man, to free the man from his idolatry. You see, he quotes to him the last half of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which Moses gave to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. But Jesus leaves off the first four commandments, the first of which is the one that this man was guilty of breaking. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, who brought you out of Egypt. In breaking this first commandment, he broke all of them. You see, idols are like pharaohs. They abuse, they oppress, they distort, they dehumanize. And the the redemption we see in Israel is a picture of Jesus' ultimate redemption, of saving the whole world and all who will receive him of their idolatries. We all struggle with idolatry. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but we do. Martin Luther said that the human heart is like an idol factory. We're always tempted to turn away and put something in the place of God. And when we do, it destroys us. It distorts and dehumanizes. It oppresses us and leads us to oppress others. Jesus means to free us, not condemn us from this. You see, wealth has always been a temptation to every society, and it's particularly a temptation to us in 21st century American context. Um, You may not know this, but we are arguably the most wealthy culture that's ever existed in all of history and all the world. A family of five today with a household of $60,000 a year is among the wealthiest 10% of people on the planet. So you can go Google that and enter in your salary, your household income, and see just comparative to the world, just how rich we really are. And Jesus says, don't, don't minimize his warning here. It's real. It has teeth. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. That's all of us. Because money, money and wealth has a particular power to blind us. To blind us to our need for God. To, to blind us to our own utter dependence upon him for life and breath and everything. Jesus means to free us. So when was the last time you honestly examined how much of your heart is is influenced by the idolatry of possessions. How would we even know? How would we avoid the trap, the vulnerability of self-deception? Tim Keller offers a few questions, diagnostic questions to help us just see a little bit of if we might, if, if the idolatry of wealth has its tentacles around our hearts at all. He says, do you have trouble giving away large amounts of money? Do you have trouble giving away when it costs you something? Do you get scared if something happens and you might have less money than you're used to having? Does that cause fear and anxiety in your heart? Do you envy those who have more than you or feel proud towards those who have less? And can you imagine a life without it, without possessions, and all you have is God? That's what he's asking the rich young ruler to imagine. He doesn't say give away some of your possessions. He says give it all away. Everything you depend upon, 
give it away and come follow me. The invitation, come follow me. He can't do it. Can you? Can I? See, turning from idolatry, whether it's wealth or whether it's some other idol, is hard. But turn from them we must if we want to enter the kingdom of God. And when this reality sinks in about how you must turn from it, but turning from it is so hard, you'll find yourself saying what the disciples said. Then who can be saved? Jesus gives us the answer. With man, it is impossible. You cannot free yourself from your idols. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. When we realize that Jesus himself is the ultimate rich young ruler who left his throne in glory and all the wealth and riches and status of heaven. Peter says it this way, who though being rich became poor for our sake so that in him we might become rich. You see, Jesus gave it all away, all away, his whole life on the cross so that he could get us. And now he asks us to give away our idols, which destroy us anyway, so that we might gain him. Let's continue reading. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they were began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the third time in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells them that he's going to Jerusalem to die and then he will rise. And for the third time, the disciples blow it and they really fail to see what Jesus is trying to get them to see. Instead of seeing the greatness of Jesus revealed in his willingness to die for the sins of the world, James and John, they vie for prominence in his kingdom. And in his rebuke, Jesus reveals that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world, infected as they are by sin. His kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom. It's 
utterly different than the way in which the world operates. The ambition to rule, the lust for self-glory, the desire to be served must all give way to the humble, self-sacrificial service of others that Jesus displays on the cross. This, Jesus says, is true greatness. This is true power. He said, it shall not be so among you. You do not use your power for your own ends. You use your power. Steward your power and authority so that others might flourish. That's what Jesus did. All power and all authority was his. How did he use it? What kind of king? What kind of Messiah is this Jesus? He's the kind that gives his life for those he loves, even for his enemies. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a, as a substitute, as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, we're all tempted from time to time to concern ourselves with our own glory, are we not? In what ways do you notice this in your own heart? In what ways do you see James and John in you? Wanting glory for yourself. But when we focus on Jesus, the truly glorious one who gave up his life for us, the king who became a servant, it empowers us to turn away from these worldly pursuits, vain pursuits of self-glory. And our lives begin to look like his life. It's just not the way we use our power and our authority and our influence. We use it not for ourselves, but for the good of others. Lastly, to follow Jesus, we must cry out for his healing mercy. Look with me at verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, notice the same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and notice this, followed him on the way. As bookends of, of this travel log from Galilee down to Jerusalem, we find two stories of Jesus healing blind men, one in Bethsaida of Galilee and one here in Jericho. And on this road trip in the middle, there's all these poignant teachings of Jesus mainly directed to his disciples. And the main lesson was this, I am going to Jerusalem to die on a cross and on the third day rise. And they just couldn't get it. They didn't have room in their theology for a crucified and risen Messiah. But, so beyond the obvious outpouring of compassion of Jesus to Bartimaeus and the other man, these stories of healing blind men were enacted parables to help the disciples see that they don't see. You don't get it. 
you don't yet see. Jesus was showing them that that they and we are in need of his healing mercy so that we can see. It would take the cross and the resurrection, a Bible lesson from Jesus on the road to Emmaus, the outpouring of his spirit at Pentecost for the disciples to finally make sense of it all. But when they do and the spirit lights the fire in their hearts, how did their lives look going forward? They looked like Jesus's. They gave themselves away for the sake of the world. And that is the life to which we are called as well. The cross and the resurrection are the center of understanding everything. Everything. From the big questions of life to the little questions of your life. To follow Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, we must allow him to redefine the way we think about everything. About marriage, about children, about money, about power, about everything. It begins to define and shape our lives. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's foolishness to the world, but it's wisdom and glory to those who know him. Do you see it? Do you want to see it more? Do you want to see how the cross and resurrection of Jesus can shape more of how you live in this world? If Jesus were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? It's a penetrating question. What do you really want? Is your answer what Bartimaeus said? Lord, I want to see. I want to see you. And I want to follow you. That's exactly what he did. Jesus said, go your way. What way did he go? He followed Jesus on the way to Jerusalem to die. And that is the road to which he calls us. Know this from Bartimaeus. It's the cry of mercy that will stop Jesus in his tracks. If it was true for him then, it's true for us now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we need your mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. We see, but we don't see. We see partially, dimly. We want to see more. We want to see more of you. And in seeing more of who you are and the kind of king you are, the kind of king who dies for his enemies, the kind of king who died for me. It changes us. Beholding your glory changes us from one degree of glory to another. And when a whole group of people, a church, lives this way, it shines this brilliant light into a dark world. Oh, Lord, we praise you. Help us to see and help us to walk on this road, a Calvary road of following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening this week. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Auburn Church, you can go online at graceauburn.church or you can download the Church Center app from the App Store or the Google Play Store on your mobile device.